Will you take your Bible, please, and turn with me to John chapter 17. Returning to John 17, we remember that this chapter is unlike any other. Because in this chapter, we have a prayer unlike any other. Uh, being prayed by a person unlike any other, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it is the longest recorded prayer uh, we have of Jesus. In it, Jesus prays for himself, for the 11 disciples who were with him at the time, then for all believers in general. The timing of this prayer, of course, is telling because within a few short hours, Jesus would give his life to give us life. It has become known as the high priestly prayer because in this prayer, Jesus brings us to God and brings God to us. It is deeply relational. And in verses 6 through 19, our focus today Jesus prays for our relationships, and I, and I think we see this in three ways. He prays for our relationship with God, for our relationships with other believers, and then for, for how believers should relate with the non-believing world. We could say it this way, by Christ we are saved to God, sanctified together, and sent to a world in need. And so let's uh, read it together. John chapter 17, from verse 6 through 19. And we remember that Jesus here is talking with the Father. The, the Son of God is talking with the Father, and He says in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are, they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you once again for our time in your word this morning. And when we pause, not just to consider this prayer of our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, but when we pause to consider that Jesus even prayed, what an amazing, amazing reality. That this one, this great Savior, continues even now to incline himself toward us and bring us and our needs before you. That this great Savior desires our sanctification together that this great Savior has sent us into this world to interact with people who need saving. So, Father, will you please encourage our hearts today? Will you please enliven our faith? Will you please help us to see again the wonder of this great Savior? For in his name we pray, amen, amen. Three ways, our relationship with God, our relationship, our relationships with other believers, and how to relate to an unbelieving world. You'll notice in verse 6 that Jesus talks about manifesting God's name. A person's name is synonymous with their character and reputation. Were I to mention a person's name, immediately you would make connections and draw conclusions about that person. When I mention the name Mother Teresa, for example, that name means something much different to you than the name Adolf Hitler because their reputation precedes them. And the mere mention of those names, by the mere mention of those names, you're making connections and you're drawing conclusions based upon the actions of those persons. And so what does Jesus here reveal about the character of God? And I think what we see in verses 6 through 11, the first half of 11, is that God is sovereign and willing and gracious to save fallen sinners out from a fallen world. Willingly, God calls specific persons out from the general populace and graciously gives them to Jesus Christ in love. We saw this last week, remember, from verses 1 and 2, and we see it here again in verse 6. So when it comes to our relationship with God, to how we relate to God, 
the first thing to know is that it owes to God and His grace primarily. Not to anything we have done or earned. God Himself gives to Jesus all whom He has called, who in turn receive from Jesus the gift of eternal life. And this sovereign act on God's part refers to the biblical doctrine of election, which essentially states that your salvation from sin and Satan to the Savior owes to God's choosing. First and foremost, to God's choosing of us, not to our choosing of him. I want you to think about it in terms of revelation and response. God must first reveal himself to you graciously before you can ever respond to him. Your response is vital. It is vital. Your response is vital, but it is secondary. So we see this rhythm of revelation and response even right here in this, in this passage. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. That's God's revelation to us. Then in verse 8, we see our response to God through Christ. I have given them the words that you gave me, Jesus said, and they have received them. And they have believed that you sent me. And so when Jesus speaks of manifesting God's name here, he means that he has revealed to these disciples and to us the nature and character of God, who God is. And what God has done, and they in turn, we in turn, respond with faith in Christ. Believing indeed that He was sent from God, and in fact saves us to God. Hear this. Your relationship with God is Christ-centered. Christ-centered. It depends upon Jesus and His revelation of God to you, His redemptive work for you, and His eternal union with you. He is the one we receive and believe, the one on whom we depend. And yet, this is radical when you stop to think about it. The one on whom we depend is praying for us. The one we pursue is pursuing all that is good for us. He prays for us because He loves and cares for us. And He loves and cares for us because we are His. All mine are yours, He says to the Father in verse 10, and yours are mine because we are His. His beloved. He desires our greatest good. Though He was returning to heaven to be with the the father verse 11 we see that the disciples were remaining on earth and would need his help and so he prayed and he prays still because the scripture says he always lives to make intercession for us now 
if that is the why of Christ's prayer, then what is the what? What exactly does Jesus pray for? Well, being that we are in relationship with God, that we have relationship with God and in through Christ, he prays in verses 11 through 19 for our relationships with others, specifically for the ways we believers relate to one another and to a non-believing world. Consider this petition, his petition, from, from the second half of verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Do you realize that unity and oneness among believers is not of secondary concern to Jesus? Of such importance is it to Him that He appeals to the very oneness of God, meaning that the way in which we relate to one another should, 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 should reflect the unity between the Father and the Son and the Spirit also, the essential oneness within the Godhead itself, even that He refers to being kept in the name of the Father and in His name too, verse 12, implies that our relationship with God necessarily affects our relationships as children of God. And the very language of God as Father, as we see here, uh, accentuates this point that we are in fact God's children in the same spiritual family, the same household of God. You guys with me this morning? Do we need a little stretch? Do we need some coffee service? Are you with me this morning? Seeing some droopy eyes and some sagging heads, and I'm not even halfway through. Okay. Are we ready? Okay, here we go. The language of God as Father, as seen here, accentuates that we are God's children. And if we are God's children, we are in the same spiritual family. We are the same household of God. But within any household, problems arise, right? Happens in my household. Happens in your household. It happens in every household. And those problems will either divide or unite us depending upon our individual response to them or, better yet, our individual response to one another as we face them. Jesus prayed and still prays for our unity because He knows that division and disunity lurk around every corner. And how easily we can allow things to come between us. Is this not true? Disunity happens on the macro level 
when churches disassociate with other churches or affiliations or denominations over relatively minor things or matters of preference, not principle. And it happens on the micro level when Christians themselves hold grudges, fail to forgive, or assume they have all the answers. Over the years, it has happened in my own life, and I know that it's happened in yours too. Because, sadly, divisions of all sorts has marked the Christian church in every age. Differences of opinion on matters like end-time theology, for example, or mode of baptism, or philosophy of ministry, or worship styles, music styles in the worship service, should not divide believers in Christ. Personal views, personal views on politics, or how to educate your children, or how to respond to social issues should not divide believers in Christ. Personal offenses, offenses against you, personal offenses, usually unintentional and without malice, should not divide believers in Christ. Hear this. God has providentially placed other believers in your life who are different than you and at times think and behave differently than you do. This is His choosing. This is His providential hand at work. And the goal, His goal, is not that we all become the same but that we all become one. Huge difference. Sameness is not oneness. So we must learn and grow from our differences and value the unity that God has established. Now, one way to do this, one way to value unity in the local church is to value consistency and longevity. Because it's hard. It's hard to foster oneness, isn't it? It's hard to foster oneness when church members don't come to church consistently. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here. When they don't participate in church life regularly. When they leave, it's a little tender, when they leave one church for another, then another, then another, without ever really putting down roots. It works against unity and oneness. It's hard to foster oneness in the church When those who leave or who aren't here 
consistently either don't care or realize the disrupting effect their absence or departure can have on the whole. Now, certainly there are times, certainly, certainly there are times when God moves a person or a family from one church to another. There are good reasons sometimes. I myself, 28 years as as a Christian, this is my third church, which means I've moved on from two previous churches. But we must realize that those decisions are big decisions. And they affect many people. And they affect the congregation as a whole. And I am, I am proud, I am, I am proud to, to pastor this church, especially when I tell other pastors about this church, about you. Because in this church, we have some people who've been here for six months, some for a year or three or five, and we have some, even in this room this morning, who've been here for nearly 30 years. And we have a whole range of people from the six-month group to the 30-year group. Sally and I have already been here for 18 years. I've been on staff for 16. When we began, we had no children. Now we have five. When we began, I had no gray. Now I have plenty. Now whether that's from the children or the church, you decide. The beauty of longevity is that over time, I mean this, the beauty of longevity is that over time we will inevitably encounter many issues and difficulties. That's a beautiful thing I'm suggesting. The beauty of longevity is we will encounter those issues. Many of them, difficult ones, and we certainly have had our share. But that's where we learn and grow We learn and grow, not by running from the issues, but by overcoming them together in pursuit of God and godliness. You see, the more we understand the character of God and value what He values, the more unified we become. Because if I am growing in my relationship with God and thus drawing near to Him, And if you are growing in your relationship with God and thus drawing near to Him, then by consequence, uh, we are growing in our relationship and understanding of each other and thus drawing nearer to each other. That's why, hear this, that's why divisions in the church are never on the horizontal level only. It's never about just me and you. Never. It's never just on the horizontal level only. There's always a vertical element to it because somewhere along the line, the parties involved lost sight of God and what God values. Unity values interdependence over independence as we each depend on God. 
And the result of this godly interdependence notice, according to verse 13, is joy. Jesus says, These things I speak that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So the same joy that fills the heart of Jesus Christ fills our hearts as we value one another from the heart and thus enjoy oneness with God together. Does that make sense? Okay. So Jesus prays for our relationships with other believers. And then from verses 14 through 19, for how we relate with the non-believing world, saying that we are in the world, yet not of the world, but still sent to the world with truth. First, we are in the world. Look with me at verse 15. I do not ask. I do not ask. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I don't. I I do not ask that you take them out of the world. But that you keep them from the evil one. I find this interesting that, that... that this concern was on the heart of Christ at this time in his life. Father, I don't want you to take them out of the world. I don't want that for them. I just want you to keep them from the evil one, please. No problem. It's no problem. That happens. How many of you remember? I don't know if I don't know if this will connect, but we'll see how it connects. But I think it's a good illustration, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it. How many of you remember Seinfeld? Okay. Don't be afraid or ashamed. You can raise your hand. Okay. The, the hit sitcom from the 80s and 90s. I mean, I think, I, don't, I think it's like the most popular sitcom ever. Like, I think that's been factually shown. Well, there's an episode in Seinfeld. It's a classic. I looked it up. Season four, episode seven. <laughs> where we're introduced to a bit character known as the bubble boy. See, he's seen it. (laughs) And the bubble boy is completely encased, completely encased from head to toe in a giant plastic life-sized bubble. 
He lives in the bubble because he's afraid. He's afraid. He's afraid of possible contamination. He prefers instead to live in a germ-free and sterile environment wherever he goes and with whomever he interacts. And we poke fun at these things, or at least the show did, but, but I, think, I think we Christians are like that at times. I think even well-intentioned Christians live in fear of possible contamination from the world. What might happen? We're afraid. And being afraid, we isolate ourselves within the supposedly safe, supposedly safe and germ-free confines of the Christian bubble. Hear me. We listen only to Christian music. We, we read only Christian books. We uniquely celebrate Christian movies, even bad ones. Oh, did you see? No, it's terrible. I didn't see it because it's terrible. We do business primarily with other Christians only. We share, get this, we share and study the Bible with other Christians only. Ask yourself, when was the last time you read the Bible with a non-believer? We go to Christian church, obviously, that's a good reason, that's a good thing. We go to Christian churches, but secretly we hope that only Christians are there. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a certain comfort to be found in the bubble, isn't there? There's a certain comfort in the bubble. It's like youth camp. I mean this. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's like youth camp because like youth camp, we enjoy life in this controlled Christian environment where we're surrounded only by other Christians and where literally every part of our daily routine has a distinctly Christian feel. I remember my summer missions trip uh, to Europe the summer uh, after I graduated from high school. I was 18 years old and honestly, I could have stayed there forever. I could have stayed there forever. I mean, I missed my parents, missed my family, I missed my friends back home, but I could have stayed there forever because our friendships were so tight. They were so tight. And our time with God was so real, we might say. Our love for God was so evident. Our service to God was so well planned for us. We didn't have to think about it. Someone planned it for us. And the fruit of our service was so evident. I mean, it truly was a heaven-on-earth experience because one awesome thing, awesome thing about heaven is that we will be with each other forever and will love it. <laughs> it took you a while. But 
while we're on earth, Jesus wants us in the world. Not insulated from it, not withdrawn or isolated. So in verse 15, he actually prays that we'd be not removed from it, but rather protected while in it. Yes, it gets messy sometimes. Yes, it's not as tidy or compartmentalized as we'd like. The lines get blurred sometimes. It's not as G-rated as we'd prefer, or even PG, or even PG-13. And at times, our allegiance to Jesus will bring discomfort and, and opposition and even hatred because we live in a fallen world where fallen people are so sin-sick that they choose their worldly way over the way of Christ. And so Jesus does pray for our safekeeping. He's concerned for that. He's concerned for our safety. He prays for our safekeeping. But to be kept from evil and the evil one himself is not to be removed from the world, but to trust God while in it. And so one extreme to avoid is isolation. But but as the next few verses point out, the other extreme of assimilation is equally undesired. And Jesus doesn't want that we withdraw from the world, nor that we become so much like it that we lose those distinctive qualities that identify us as Christians. Twice, once in verse 14 and again in 16, he makes clear that we are not of the world. We are not, even as he is not of the world. Then in verse 17 and 19, he prays specifically for our sanctification. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then he says, for their sake, I consecrate myself. Consecrate, same word. I have sanctified myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So to be sanctified or to sanctify is to be dedicated to God. It's to be dedicated to God. It speaks of holiness, purity, distinctiveness, though in the world we are distinct from the world because we are not of the world. No longer are we characterized by uh, worldly things or consumed by those things. Instead, we're marked by the truth of God. And when the world denies truth or suggests that truth is relative, we reply with truth because we are being sanctified in it and because we are unashamed of it. So our distinguishing mark as believers in Christ is truth. God's word is truth, says in verse 17. God's word here, that that mention of God's word, it, it doesn't refer specifically to the Bible, although the Bible is God's word. Instead, it's more of an all encompassing word that just refers to the truth of God as contained maybe in the Bible, the main message of the Bible. I think we could say the truth of the gospel. The gospel is this truth 
this, this great news truth that God so loved the world. He so loved the world that he sent his only son Jesus to it. So that whoever believes in Jesus would not perish in their sins, but receive from Jesus the gift of forgiveness and righteousness and everlasting life with God. And that truth, our sanctification in the gospel and our promotion of the gospel should characterize our lives. Not only are we saved by God and sanctified in truth, we are sent to the world as Jesus was. He says plainly to the Father in verse 18, As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them. And so we mustn't, just please don't miss, don't miss the parallel between what Jesus did and what he has left us to do. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and Jesus accomplished all that is necessary for the salvation of the lost and their reconciliation to God. But he has left us to proclaim that news as ministers of reconciliation. Actually, I'd rather put it this way. He has left you. He has left you. And you, and you, and you, and you, he's left you. And I use you because isn't it true that sometimes we hide behind the us? There's safety in the us. I can, I can kind of withdraw to the, to, the, to the background in the us. I can blend in with the us. And so even though I may affirm the Great Commission, I can still assume that it applies mainly to someone else in the us. Someone more qualified, someone with gifts of evangelism, someone who knows the Bible better than I do, Someone who's a better communicator and able to strike up conversation, more of a people person. Someone who has more time on their hands. Someone uniquely called to the mission field. And yet each one of us, me and you and the person next to you and behind you and in front of you, we, we need to embrace the fact that we are each on mission. Each one of us. Sent by Christ himself to a world in need. Jesus sends people of all types from all walks of life to the mission field. Not just professional missionaries. Not just professional missionaries. So we need photographers who view themselves as being on mission. Cabinet makers who view themselves as being on mission. 
architects who view themselves as being on mission. We need teachers on mission, caretakers on mission, insurance agents on mission, doctors on mission, IT experts on mission, students on mission, accountants on mission, designers on mission, coaches on mission. Now the list goes on. We need pastors who view themselves and their churches as being on mission. We need to see our vocation not as an end in itself, but a means to an even greater end that's not primarily about money. And the mission field isn't across the world only. It is. It is across the world. But it isn't across the world only. It's across your street. It's in your neighborhood. It's places outside the church walls. Places of work, leisure, places of school and community. My daughter found herself on the mission field even this week on the public high school campus. And I hesitated to share this with you. I don't want to make it about me or us. And so I talked and got permission. But in English class, they were reading Shakespeare in a book that referenced Jacob of the Bible. And that led to the discussion of uh, that, that account when Jacob worked for Laban to earn Rachel's hand in marriage. And the teacher, well-meaning, was just totally misrepresenting the story and confusing the facts. And so Abigail respectfully raised her hand, then stood up from her desk and in front of the entire class shared the truth of Jacob as the Bible presents it. And the teacher, though initially taken aback, you can imagine, was thankful for the correction. And the other students in the class literally, literally applauded the courage. Some of them asked Abby if she was a Christian. And one of them even suggested that they, maybe they could get together to read the Bible. She didn't share the entire gospel. But who knows what God might do from that moment on the mission field an everyday moment that became a simple opportunity to stand for truth. 
And, and that's really what I really want to emphasize from this story. Hear this. There was a specific moment in a specific place when a specific choice had to be made. The decision to either do or not do. To either stand or not stand. To either speak or not speak. To either engage the world or withdraw from it. You know what we call those? Those moments? Divine appointments. Everyday moments, divinely appointed by God, in which we can testify to God. And I suspect that hardly a day goes by when you and I aren't faced with similar moments, probably more than one. Moments that aren't necessarily monumental. It's not a, let's get on my mission gear and go to the mission field. It's not that. It's not monumental that way. They're just opportune. Opportunities to serve. Opportunities for conversation. Opportunities for instruction. Opportunities for truth that may lead to other opportunities. And who knows? Who knows? Who knows what God might do with those? Opportunities to step outside your self-imposed limitations and seize the moment God gives you. Don't let those opportunities pass you by. Cannot contain the joy Abby had when she came home and shared that news. There's joy for you. God intends joy for you in those opportunities. In this prayer, Jesus desires right relationships with God, with other believers, and with the non-believing world. For by Christ we are saved to God. We are sanctified together. And we are sent to a world in need. Amen. God, make us to be very sensitive, attentive, discerning, desiring to hear your voice as you bring opportunities to our lives day by day. That, that, that as those who are saved as those who are sanctified and being sanctified, as those who are sent, that we would enjoy the blessing of this great life to which you've called us, even to Christ himself. We bless you. We bless you. We thank you. We love you. Thank you for your love for us through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name, for his glory, we pray and live and do 
Amen.